I'm not hearing the music, though. There we go. Awesome. Hey, good evening, everyone. For our Arizona peeps, I hope you followed along with the hour change, but this is the live episode of In With The Old. We're the video podcast focused on dispelling myths, building appreciation for God's word, and helping you rediscover the Old Testament for the life of faith. Life of faith. Life of faith? Boy, <laughs> can't talk tonight. Tim, you're going to need to help me out here uh, because I'm joined, thankfully. This is not just listening to me because that would be very boring and I'd be mispronouncing things apparently. But I'm joined tonight by, with Dr. Tim Howe, my co-host, uh, and we are in episode nine of the CounterPoint series. Before we introduce that episode, though, Tim, what's going on? How are you doing tonight? course i asked him just as his video froze <laughs> all right oh he's my back. goodness How are you doing tonight, well Tim? i'm back uh i hope you can see me and hear me but it's funny just as we start we've been talking for 20 minutes and have nothing go wrong but uh you failed the shibboleth and my my screen is freezing so this could be a fun night brian but i'm here <laughs> i'm excited and uh, can't wait to talk oh, about the biblical covenants tonight. you know what we're both trained uh and we're both from the baptist tradition but um uh, exorcisms are starting to look more and more appealing. Like maybe there's some uh, techno demon here, but uh, you know what? That's okay. Tim, good to have you here. Uh, the Lord is more powerful than me misspeaking and technological issues. And so we are excited to talk about the Old Testament tonight. So listeners, today's episode, episode nine of the CounterPoint series is our second to last episode of the series. Next week, we're going to be talking about Noah's Ark. Was it a worldwide flood? How do we get the animals on the ark? These are some of the things we're going to be talking about, but that's going to kind of wrap up this CounterPoint series. We're then going to, if I can give you a sneak peek uh, looking ahead, we have a question and answer episode coming up in two weeks. So if you've ever had a question that you want us to answer, go ahead and send it in. Of course, if you join us live on Monday nights at 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific, you can ask us live. I would kind of encourage you, though, send your questions in early so that we can give you a more well-researched and informed opinion on them. However, if you just show up live and ask the question, that's fine, too. After that, we've got a few great interviews lined up for you, and then we're going to close it off at the beginning of the December with a reflection on this almost complete full year of In With The Old. It's been a great journey. We're looking forward to kind of setting the scene then and setting a vision for 2024 and where the podcast is going to go in the new year. But tonight, episode nine of the CounterPoint series, we're going to be talking about covenants. So covenants are a central backbone, uh, a central pillar of understanding the biblical story. If you've grown up in the church, I'm sure you've heard the word thrown around, uh, but do we stop and actually think about, well, what is a covenant? How do we understand them? How do we deal with them? Well, that's what we're going to be talking about and debating tonight. So, uh, Dr. Tim, before we get started, is there anything you'd like to uh, tell our listeners or talk about before we dive in? Hey, I'm just glad to be here tonight with you, Brian. And uh, what come what may, we're going to get through this and uh, and enjoy it. So covenant is absolutely a, a crucial issue, and I'm excited to be talking about it with you. Fantastic. So as if you followed along in the series, you know that Dr. Tim and I take turns kind of outlining a position and then moving into a question and answer time. So tonight I'm going to start out, and I'm going to start out by giving us some definitional terms, and then I'll highlight at least a couple things that 
Dr. Tim might want to push back on or ask me about. So biblical covenants, as I said, form the narrative backbone of the biblical story. Uh, Because of that, understanding them and how they relate to one another is of the utmost importance. We want to understand that the Bible is not just 66 separate books, but it is one meta-narrative, one combined story. We probably want to understand how it's been put together. And covenants, most people I think would agree with us, are central to how the Bible puts itself together. So what is it? What is a covenant? Well, uh, Gordon Hugenberger, fantastic name, sir, uh, gives us a very nice, clean definition of a covenant. A covenant in its normal sense, he says, is an elected as opposed to natural relationship of obligation under oath. Now, what does he mean by an elected relationship versus a natural relationship? Well, natural relationships are those you have by birth or by nationality, right? You can't choose your family as the saying goes. Those are relationships you have by virtue of being born. In our modern world, you hold citizenship, usually, in the country you're born in. So these are natural relationships. But beyond those, we have elected relationships. These are our spouses, our friends, our coworkers, right? These are people we have chosen to engage in some form of relationship with. So a covenant is a way of formalizing that, and specifically putting some obligations under oath into that relationship. So think of a covenant as a way to formalize any type of relationship in the ancient world, specifically the ancient Near East, which is our culture of the Old Testament. These relationships that we have in the biblical text, even, we see they can formalize marriages, military alliances, treaties, and so on and so on. They're, They're fairly expansive in their uses. They're framed around the concept of fidelity. And this is important. Covenants are interested in fidelity. Contracts, another way to formalize an elective relationship, are focused around performance. So listeners, it's the modern world. You're probably watching this or listening to this on some electronic device and maybe a phone. Think about a phone for a second. You have a relationship, an elected relationship, with your service provider, whichever one it is. Now, that relationship is formalized through a contract, and that contract is evaluated based on performance. You pay them money each month, and they give you reliable service. That's how you know that relationship is working well. That's a contract. A covenant, however, is not focused on an exchange of goods or services. That's a contract. A covenant, instead, is focused on an exchange of life. It's focused on saying, you are mine and I am yours. We are going to work to know one another better. We are going to work to be more faithful towards one another. It is a powerful dynamic switch, and it's not negating the fact that we will do things for one another in a covenant relationship, but the thing being done is not the goal. It's that relationship is the goal of a covenant. This is why when we think of marriages as covenants, there's, I think, some very important takeaways you could have here. Now, this difference of covenant versus contract is different to our modern world. We don't think of relationships this way usually. Peter Gentry, in a book that I'm going to reference a few times tonight uh, called Kingdom Through Covenant, says that the very idea and notion of a covenant found in the Bible and in the biblical world is foreign to our culture, society, and thought world. And that's important to know. We are dealing with a type of relationship that we don't normally structure our lives around today. We like contracts, but covenants are where we're going to be dealing. So if that's what a covenant is, and we have plenty of examples of small covenants being written and uh, performed in the Old Testament, what are the major covenants? You know, the ones that the Bible hangs itself upon, as it were. What is the backbone? 
Well, depending on who you ask, and this is point one where Tim might push back on me, we're going to have five or six biblical covenants. I think there are six. So the ambiguity comes in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis has two or three, depending on how you want to classify it. I think there are three biblical covenants that move the story forward in the book of Genesis. I think there's a covenant with Adam, Noah, and then Abraham or Abram, when it's first made in Genesis 12. Now, Noah and Abram, uh, everyone will see agree with those, and everyone is going to agree with the next three. Adam is the odd one out. Beyond that, we can move to Exodus, and you have the covenant at Sinai, sometimes called the Sinaitic Covenant, sometimes called the Mosaic Covenant, but we mean the same thing. We can move forward to the book of First and Second Samuel, or just Samuel in the Tanakh, uh, and you have the Davidic Covenant made with King David about his son that will reign forever this anointed one, the Messiah. And then, of course, we have the last one, the new covenant. A new covenant is in my blood, Jesus says at the Last Supper, right? So you have these five or six covenants that kind of hold the Bible together. Now, what do we do with them? Or how do we understand them? Because Christians have tried to understand covenants, and we don't always agree on how they fit together and how they work. Uh, Traditionally, there are two major kind of whole Bible systems that people will use to interpret covenants. We call these systems of thought covenant theology and dispensational theology. Um, So hat tip to Gentry and Wellam's definition here. Both dispensationalism and covenantalism acknowledge the broad idea of progressive revelation, redemptive epochs, where God acts differently at different times. This is what we mean by dispensation, by the way. both views would agree that all things are fulfilled in Christ, et cetera, et cetera. But it's in the details that they are going to differ sharply, and that is going to cause them to come to different conclusions about how the covenants are put together. So a vastly oversimplified view is that uh, dispensationalism, a very popular view in the U.S., a little less so worldwide, uh, sees God as working in different redemptive epochs and focuses on the discontinuity of the covenants. The covenants do push forward, but the church, and specifically the new covenant, is something new and something a little bit unexpected. Dispensationalists especially focus on the unconditional promises of the Old Testament, most importantly to Abram about the land, the promised land, and they say those covenant promises cannot be fulfilled by the church. God's promises are unconditional, and they must still be fulfilled to an ethnic people of Israel. And so this, we are going to talk about this this is beyond the scope of our uh, our bounds today, but that's going to have some impact, right? And how you view the end times and how you th- see things figuring out, especially with the millennial kingdom. On the other side of the spectrum, you have covenant theology, and covenantalism sees God as working through major covenants, but they're not the covenants I just mentioned. Those are the biblical covenants. We have meta categories in covenantalism, so you have a covenant of redemption. This is a covenant that God makes with himself before the foundation of the world to redeem a people to himself. You have the covenant of works made with Adam in the garden. And it is this covenant where man is given the choice to be in relationship with God or not. And we fail. And then lastly, you have the covenant of grace. And this is where they put every other biblical covenant from Noah through the new covenant, because this is made in Christ, through Christ, for Christ, for all who would believe. Um, So you have these meta categories that kind of come in. So covenant theology, by contrast to dispensationalism, is going to stress that there has only ever been one people of God, Old Testament, New Testament. Um, We don't 
look back to fulfill promises in the old. The promises made in the Old Testament to those covenants can and will be fulfilled by the church. There's only one people of God. Key here is that both views are going to divide the covenants and the Old Testament covenants especially into one of two types. They're going to say either they are unconditional and they would use ancient Near Eastern language of like, this is a royal grant. God promises to do something and it doesn't matter what the human partner does. He will accomplish this. And conditional covenants or what they might call suzerain vassal treaties. These are promises where both parties have promised to do something. You do this for me. I do this for you. And those covenants, if the human side fails their side, God is not obligated to fulfill his side. That was a lot of stuff thrown at you very quick, and I apologize. We can come back and flesh any of these points out, Tim, if we need to. But here's where I'm going to uh, plant down a little bit of a flag, and I'm going to declare war on everyone. Woo! <laughs> I'm going to argue that both systems are incorrect in their reading of the biblical covenants, because I think the Bible employs a much more nuanced view of covenants than those systems traditionally argue. I think rather than sticking with the traditional ancient Near Eastern categories, the Bible intentionally blurs the lines when it starts talking about covenants between God and humanity, because each and every one of those Old Testament covenants has both unconditional and conditional elements. Each one of those covenants shows unilateral action by God. He steps into the story. He does not wait for humanity. But at the same time, he seems to demand obedience to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. Now, I said I declare war, and it's not just me. Um, this is a view known as progressive covenantalism. I already referenced their book, but uh, Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellam uh, are some of the progenitors of this view with their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, and also Wellam and Parker with the book, Progressive, Covenantal- progressive Covenantalism. So they would say, and I would say, there's always a sense in which every covenant is unilateral or unconditional. God is a faithful covenant keeper. He's the faithful covenant keeper. He is the one who is always true to his promises. His words never fail. He's the one that reaches into history. Nothing compels him to come in. He's the one that calls people to himself. Nothing compels that. He goes to Israel in Egypt when they're in bondage. He does not wait for Sinai to happen. He does not wait for them to obey. He comes to his people. At the same time, there's always a need for a faithful image bearer to be an obedient partner to the covenant. Adam is told there are things to do in the garden. Noah is told how to live his life post-flood. Abram is told where to go and how to live his life, and so on and so on. When these these individuals disobey, there are consequences in every covenant for that person, their families, and their descendants. That seems to be conditional to me. I think this tension is very nicely captured for us in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6. Listen to what the author says. I want to read for us here. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, that seems to be all unconditional so far. Very good. But listen to this next bit. We who have fled for refuge, uh, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Ooh, that's an action we are supposed to take. There's a tension here, right? There's a both and. And I think that's the point. By having each and every covenant be both unconditional and conditional, there's a problem we begin seeing 
grow and grow in the biblical story. God is good. God desires relationships with humanity, but God demands perfection. And that tension is going to grow covenant after covenant. How can we accomplish this? How can humanity be good enough to be the partner that God needs, that God demands, that God deserves in this covenant relationship? Because we see time and time again, God is perfect. God is faithful. God is full of loving kindness, covenant fidelity, but we aren't. How do we resolve that tension? I think this is what pushes us into that new covenant, that we now have a high priest who is fully man and fully God, who can perfectly obey even to the point of death on a cross. So I think that is essential and key to seeing the trajectory of the biblical covenants. Uh, I see them finding their fulfillment, their, their telos, their end in philosophical terms in the person of Jesus Christ. And so I don't necessarily look back and go, who can fulfill what promise? Because I believe they are all fulfilled in Christ himself. So that was both a explanation, a little bit of covenants and my view. Apologies, it was a little rambling, but I'm going to now kick it over to Tim uh, to clarify if I misspoke or, or said anything that you want to add to, and then uh, to give us his view of biblical covenants. Go ahead, Tim. Yeah, well, thank you, Brian. Uh, that was really helpful, and I uh, can't wait to talk about Genesis 1 or even pre-Genesis 1. That's going to be fun. Uh, but a lot of what I want to say about covenant is uh, an echo and maybe a few slight alterations with what Brian said. But again, to just orient us a little bit, I think the, the covenants give us a very helpful narrative structure that's really actually helpful in teaching us and just helping us remember the chronology of the Old Testament itself. So Brian mentioned that there are a lot of people who argue for a covenant at creation. We could say Genesis 1 or maybe technically Genesis 2 and 3. Uh, but a covenant at creation, I'm willing to at least say that God had a very established relationship with Adam that looked a lot like a covenant, even though I wouldn't classify it that way. But of course, as the biblical text continues, you have this, this entrance of sin into the world. And my position is essentially that the entrance of sin into the world really required covenants, not because God needed to uh, establish a covenant with us, but really my argument is that covenants were established primarily for our benefit. And I'll just uh, put this up front and, and out in the open. Think of this. God uh, could have easily just spoken, I promise you this, or, or he could have said, I'm going to do this for you. And even the verse that Brian read, and I'll bring it up later, says it's impossible for God to lie. He could have given those promises just by speaking them, but he chose covenants as a vehicle by which we could be assured of that promise. And we'll come back to that, but I think it's helpful when we think about the biblical covenants and even the unfolding of the story. You have the covenant that God makes with Noah and with creation. It's a covenant with Noah, his sons, but also the earth. And that covenant of, is, of course, that he would not destroy the world again by a flood. But that's, again, for our sake, so that we would have an assurance that God's love was continuous and that we would have an ability to live in this world, not having to wonder, is God going to destroy it again that way? The same thing as we think about the covenant that God makes with Abram, who would become Abraham, that God is working to bring about his redemptive purposes. And with Abraham, I think there are, of course, blessings immediate to him in terms of land. But I think of the long-term promise of God blessing all the nations, all the peoples of the world through Abraham. 
fast forward to Moses and the Mosaic Covenant, as Brian said, also known as the Sinaitic Covenant. That takes us all the way to the people of Israel in Egypt, out of Egypt, where God establishes the descendants of Abraham as a nation before him. We'll talk about that more in a minute, but of course, eventually in that nation, they're going to have a, a king who rules over them, and God's going to choose David as a representative king who will have an established throne, but not just a throne, a house. And that house will eventually, and I don't mean physical house, but a house of descendants from whom will come a Messiah who will establish an eternal kingdom that is both spiritual, but also physical. And so the first thing I want to say is the narrative structure of covenants just helps us uh, grasp and comprehend the biblical timeline. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. If you want to sum up the Old Testament in, in just a nutshell, you can really good, use that as a good skeleton. But also, I think the covenants are helpful because they illustrate what God is trying to accomplish. And this is where I would totally agree with what Brian said about the progressive nature of the covenants. But I think oftentimes we miss that each of the covenants reveals to us a part of God's purposes in the world. So, for instance, when God calls Abram, he does so to demonstrate the supremacy of faith. Abraham, of course, was the father of faith. Uh, but as we think about this, the aspect that God wants us to see is that his blessing is not just reserved for Abram or even for his descendants, but the blessing of God is going to be for all nations. I will bless those who bless you, I'll curse those who curse you, but all families of the earth will be blessed because of you, Abram. Um, so we see that, this idea that God's salvation is for all, but then with the Mosaic Covenant, as we continue, we see that God is trying to establish something in particular. He's trying to establish a people for himself that's really summarized in that phrase, a kingdom of priests. Uh, and so we've talked about this before, but when we talk about Israel as the chosen people of God, we have to ask the question, chosen for what purpose? Well, God wanted to use them as the shining light to the world of what it looks like when a people follow the commands of God and in turn receive his blessing. And then with David, as we fast forward, and of course we're skipping over a lot, but broad picture, we see the purposes of God come to fruition with David, that God desires to have a kingdom of priests, but he also desires to have a man after his own heart, a king who will rule over that kingdom, and a king who will secure the promise of blessing for his people, as well as extend that promise of blessing to those who haven't yet taken part in the covenantal blessings. So, we see the narrative structure, we see the purposes of God revealed, and I, I want to come back again to that, that basic thought I introduced at the beginning, that covenants, again, are not made for God's benefit, yet, as Brian stated so clearly, God initiated every one of the covenants, and just let that settle in for a moment. That tells us that God desires a relationship with us so much that he is, in a, a sense, willing to condescend and use a human construct, the idea of covenant, so that we can not just have a relationship with him, but we can have confidence in that relationship with him. So again, I'm going to come back to Hebrews chapter 6, and I'm going to read a few more verses of Hebrews chapter 6. It says this, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. 
People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. And because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. In other words, hear that. It's for our sake, for our encouragement, so that we could know God's heart for us, that God entered into these covenants. And then the author of Hebrews continues, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So the covenants are made by God, initiated by God as a sign of his desire for relationship with us, both, of course, in this world and in this earthly life, but ultimately in the new covenant, in life eternal. Now, I want to briefly talk about this idea of conditional and unconditional covenants. I agree with Brian fundamentally that when it comes to uh, the covenants, there's always a conditional element and an unconditional element. And here's why, because the covenants are designed to push forward God's uh, designs in in saving humans, which means that God is making promises that he knows will come to fruition. Uh, But of course, as Brian said, he's using human vehicles to do that. So even when we think about Abraham, God makes those promises to Abraham. But even as we look at Abraham's story, those promises are then reiterated and reconfirmed. We see that in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, Genesis 17 and Genesis 22. God makes those promises, but as Abraham obeys and and demonstrates his faith by work, God reconfirms those covenantal promises. Uh, But here's what I, I, I want to argue, and I'll be interested to hear what Brian thinks about this. I think the problem that we can run into at times is basically appropriating what we see in one particular covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and trying to take those ideas of clear blessing and specific curses for covenant disobedience, and we kind of import those covenantal specificities on other covenants. In other words, uh, the Mosaic Covenant is very clear, and in one sense, it's somewhat unique because the Mosaic Covenant is establishing a national people of God. It's establishing a kingdom, a nation state, a kingdom of priests. And with that, God makes very clear up front, here are the obligations of the covenant, and here are the curses that will come if you don't follow them. Here are the blessings, here are the curses, and that's part of the structure of what it means to be the people of God. Now, as we think about that, I think sometimes we take especially those curses and then try to import the same kind of blessings and curses for covenantal obedience on the other covenants that just isn't quite as clear. And I'd be glad to talk about that more as we go on. But here's the last thing that I want to say. When, when it comes to covenants, I think it's not just that the storyline uh, really hinges on them. I think we have to remember that the requirements of one covenant, in one sense, continue on to the covenants that come after. And here's what I mean by this. Uh, To me, the foundational covenant in redemptive history is the covenant that God makes with Abraham. It's the one that that continues on even after the Mosaic covenant uh, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, But what do we see there? That is a covenant, and the New Testament, of course, talks about that, uh, this. That is a covenant of faith that Abraham believes God, God credits it to him as righteousness, and through that faith, Abraham then follows in covenantal obedience. Now, here's again what I want to argue, that that same basic framework, faith that leads to obedience, 
is also true of the Mosaic Covenant in ways that I, I think a lot of times people miss. And Brian touched on it earlier. Think of the Mosaic Covenant. God did not make that covenant with Israel bef- uh, before he redeemed them and said, okay, if you obey, then I will redeem you. No, what does the book of Exodus teach us? That God heard his people cry out. He remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And out of response to his own covenantal love, he saved his people, but then said, if you want to live with me as my people, this is what you're going to have to do. But here's what's key. Always underneath the Mosaic covenant is this prerequisite, if you will, of faith. Uh, and, and I look at this and I think about this, not only as we see the Sinai covenant ratified in the book of Exodus, but I see it particularly in the book of Numbers. Think of this. In the book of Numbers, we see uh, Joshua send out the spies, and or Moses rather, send out the spies. Joshua was one of them. Joshua and Caleb come back. They give the report that, yes, there's, there's enemies in the land, but we can take it because God's behind us. The other 10 give that unfaithful, evil report, and because of that, the, the hearts of the people melt. But here's the point. What kept the people of Israel, those who had just been placed under the Sinaitic covenant, what kept them from entering into the land was ultimately a lack of faith. If they would have been more like their father Abraham and trusted, then God would have blessed them. So we see that lack of faith that ultimately negated any obedience that they had rendered to God. So we cannot think of a a quid pro quo Uh, relationship with God where we perform the acts that we think he desires, but we do so without faith, that would ultimately be not done, pardon the pun, in good faith. That would be something that we would try to use to basically trick God or pull the wool over his eyes. Uh, And I think the same thing is true, by the way, we see in Deuteronomy, the Mosaic Covenant sees faith as a prerequisite, but we also see that in Deuteronomy when we see God say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In other words, faith and love, and we might say a faithful obedience that is born of love, is something that undergirds all of the biblical covenants from Abraham to Moses to David and then to the new covenant. And so when we look to the new covenant, we can rightly say, yes, this is an unconditional offer of grace. But of course, as we receive that, we receive that also with a desire to show, as Paul says in the book of Romans, and this is one of my favorite phrases in the book of Romans, and really in the New Testament, because I think it explains it so well, that God desires the obedience of faith, that as we receive those blessings, we are at the same time taking on the responsibility that says, God, as a recipient of your grace, I want to obey because of the faith that I have now Uh, that I've now shown by accepting the gift that you've offered. And so as we think about biblical covenants, just to sum it up, they're initiated by God because he desires to have a relationship with us. They are given really for us. God didn't have to make a covenant. He didn't have to make his promise in that form. But he did so because he wanted us to have a hope, a surety that God would not go back on his promise so that God doubles down. He doesn't just say it. He makes a covenant with us. And guess what? Those covenants mean that God has skin in the game, and ultimately, I totally agree with what Brian said, that Christ, his death, burial, resurrection, is the culmination of all of the covenants, at which point to that we can just say, praise the Lord, and we thank him, uh, because truly, 
the covenant we have through Christ is the greatest of all the covenants. There's a lot there. I'm so appreciative of Brian for his definitions, for walking us through dispensationalism and covenant theology. I'm happy to dive into the weeds there, but I wanted to just give us a big picture overview and maybe some particularities of how I see faith working through all of the covenants in a way that oftentimes people miss. So Brian, uh, that's where I'm at, and uh, I'm glad to dialogue with you and, and look at some questions from our listeners as well. Excellent. Well, thank you for that, Tim. Really well done. I appreciate uh, how you articulate your position and you've given us some interesting things to talk about tonight. So I'm excited for it. Listeners that are here with us live, uh, as always, feel free to jump in the chat, ask your questions. We will get to them as we go through this. So uh, as you were talking to him, I was taking some notes and uh, let's start maybe here, if you don't mind, at the beginning, because yep. we do agree in some of the the meta categories, as it were, of the covenants but kind of like I said with dispensational covenant theology, it's the details of how do we fit these things together. Yeah. So let's go back, though, to the beginning. Yes. We were just talking before the episode, like, man, <laughs> everything keeps going back to Genesis. We need to do other things. But we're going back to Genesis. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. A covenant with Adam. I think there is one. Uh, and I gathered from your presentation, uh, I mean, you even said, like, a similar concepts there, but the word isn't, I don't want to use the word. So what, what would you make of that relationship that God establishes with Adam, with Eve in the garden before the fall? Yeah, I, I think the reason why I don't want to use that word is because I think the, the author intentionally does not use that word. Um, and so it's an argument from silence, but I think arguments from silence are only weighty in as much as the silence demands an answer. So uh, we see the author of Genesis use the the word covenant, the idea of covenant over and over and over again, mm-hmm. all the way from uh, Genesis uh, 9 all the way on. So to me, the question then is, okay, if the author is very familiar and builds upon this concept later, why would that word not be used? And I think the basic answer to that is actually something that I was reminded of by your definition by Gordon uh, Hugenberger. Again, great name. I'm going to read your definition, Brian. A covenant in its normal sense is an elected as opposed to natural relationship of obligation under oath. Uh, mm-hmm. And to me, that's that's helpful because there was no need for a covenant in Genesis 2 and 3 because there was already a natural relationship. And as we've discussed before, I think that's inherent to the idea of image bearing uh, in the same way that I don't have to make a covenant with my son because he's my son. Uh, God didn't have to make a covenant with Adam and Eve because they were his sons and daughters. So it was because of sin. And this is what I said in, in my presentation. It's because of sin that covenants uh, were necessary. God entered into that relationship because sin had separated them from God. And so uh, it, it's in one sense a small thing, but in another sense, I believe covenants were designed to point us back to the relationship that God had with Adam and Eve from the beginning, uh, and therefore covenants are a reflection of that perfect relationship. Uh, but I don't think covenant uh, is really necessary because in a sinless world, there was no need for a covenant to start with. And that, by the way, does push back against a lot of what uh, progressive covenantalism would say, because they, of course, talk about the covenant of grace that was true before the creation of the world that was internal to the Trinity. Well, covenantalism, not progressive covenantalism. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Um, No, no, that's fine. So um, (laughs) 
It's interesting. So let me ask you uh, two questions then, uh, yeah. and then I can expound upon my view. Um, so first, is marriage a covenant in the Old Testament? I do believe that marriage is referred to as a covenant. Uh, that's is? an interesting thought. So, so Isn't there I marriage in Genesis 1? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's my second question. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's different, right? I mean, marriage marriage can be a covenant in the sense of of that relationship between humans. But of course, the mm-hmm. question in Genesis two and three is: Does God have a kind of covenantal relationship with humans? Not do humans have a covenantal relationship with one another? Uh, and to that, I think I would say too. Um, it, I think even in Genesis two and three, right there, there are covenants that are perfect, or there, I should say, there's harmonious relationships that are perfect. Adam and Eve knew each other; they were naked, and there was no shame. Uh, but afterward is where that idea of okay, uh, marital uh, dysfunction, marital friction—that's uh, the idea of covenant coming in that says, "Hey, we are bound together despite our sin," so that human covenants again. Uh, that's a really good point, though, Brian. I'm really kind of mulling that over in my mind it's right now. It's not original now. to me. Um, yeah. But that is something I, w- when I hear people push back on the idea of covenant being present in the creation story, I go, marriage is consistently called a covenant. Um, yeah. And marriage, the the editor's note or the author's note at, at the end of Genesis 2 is saying, hey, this is, the, this is marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so doesn't that mean the concept is there? fully grant you the word is not there. So um, that would be at least one point of evidence I'd go like, no, I think the idea is there. And beyond that, I would add a few other things to say, I think we have a covenant in Genesis one. You're right that Adam and Eve are image bearers, but this is a key point. They are not actual children, uh, Mm -hmm. the children of God in a literal, you know, progeny sense. They're being established much like the Kings uh, of Egypt, I'm thinking, for example, who are called the image bearers of Ra, right? The right. sons of the gods. Uh, covenants are, or the idea of a covenant is used to establish their obligation to their God and vice versa. So I think contextually, everything that God does to call them out as unique, give them, here's what you're supposed to be doing, here's your obligations, that reads like a covenant to me, that we're establishing this relationship, I'm establishing here's who I am to you, you are to me, here's what I would have you do. Um, So I see the idea there. I see that both in Hosea and Jeremiah 33, uh, you have references to a covenant that Mm. seems to be in uh, the creation story. So Hosea, right, mentions that Adam is a transgressor of the covenant. And we can rightly ask, whoa, 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 whoa. If the Noahic covenant is our first biblical covenant, what did Adam transgress? There seems to be a covenant there. Um, covenant theologians, right, would say, okay, that's the the covenant of works. I don't like that term because I'm not a covenantalist. I'm aggressive covenantalist. Mm-hmm. Minor detail, but whatever. Um, so I, I disagree with that. Jeremiah 33 talks about uh, God, and it's a rhetorical back and forth, but he talks about making the covenant of the day and of the night when I establish the heavens. Mm-hmm. Again, that seems to be referring, you'd have to say it refers back to Noah, uh, Noah's story, which does use a lot of the same imagery. But Noah's story is referencing Genesis 1. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so mm-hmm. I, I, I see some biblical evidence internal there. So you do ask a good question. Why would, yeah. why would the author of Genesis not use the word covenant? Mm-hmm. Uh, and the key reason to me is because covenants do have a standard usual oath and ceremony that you go through that would not be necessary and would be confusing pre-fall. 
So listeners, uh, to make a covenant in Hebrew, every student that learns Hebrew quickly learns that this is a violent language and a violent culture. Um, to make a Hebrew, uh, to make a Hebrew, holy cow, uh, to make a covenant, you literally cut a covenant. And this is from, we see it in Genesis, cutting animals in half. That's part of the ceremony. You're supposed to split animals and walk between them because you're invoking that fate for yourself from the gods if you should violate the covenant, right? Um, may I be struck dead if I break this. Well, that's improper before the fall. There's no sin to be afraid of. Uh, if it's a god to Adam covenant, who are you calling to strike you dead? One of the parties of that covenant. Ooh, and something happens oddly in Abraham's covenant when that happens. Uh, Abram doesn't walk through the animals. Uh, similarly, and this would maybe undercut views that have animal death, but you could say it's improper to have animal death. What would that be pre-fall? So you don't cut a covenant in Genesis 1 because that language would not make sense, but the idea is still there. Uh, and then lastly, Tim, you're, you're aware as I am uh, that the Noahic covenant, if that's our first covenant, has mm. an oddity in that it's not cut. It is established. Mm. That is typically reserved as language of changing a covenant partner for a pre-existing covenant. Like I'm reestablishing it with a new uh, signatory on one side, which mm. would imply that there was a covenant with Adam. It gets broken. It is now being reestablished or reaffirmed with Noah now as covenant head two, as it were. Um, mm -hmm. So I look at all these data points and I go, I think there's enough to say uh, the idea is there. And if it walks like a duck, it quacks like a duck. This seems to fit the the theme and the backbone of scripture that's going to push us forward. Why not? Um, if this is not a covenant, this is the only human God relationship in the entire Bible, not governed by a covenant. And that mm -hmm. feels odd. So, uh, that would kind of be my general arguments and data points I'd put out there. What do you think of those things? Yeah, well, one, I think that those are weighty, you know, and some of those I, I really want to mull over a little bit more in my mind. But the, the kind of fundamental question that you raise at the end, uh, this would be the only human relationship not governed by a covenant. Uh, I think it is a very unique human relationship, at which point that wouldn't be surprising. Uh, and and the what I go back to, and we've talked about this, Brian, but I'll, I'll reiterate it. That idea of sonship, I do think, is uh, really just as important as an inherent part of We're image bearing up, uh, as kingship. So, uh, of course, you know that the the governing words there, uh, Salim and Demut, is used not just in Genesis one, but in Genesis five to describe the relationship between Adam and Seth. That Seth is made in the likeness is how we normally mm -hmm. translate that of. Adam. And uh, while, of course, that's not biological, uh, it says that Adam was made in the likeness of God. We see that reiterated in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3, that Adam is specifically referred to as a son of God. Uh, mm -hmm. So I think it is a unique relationship, whether there's a covenant there or not. Uh, but I just point to the fact that it, it's very obvious that the author had the word available, but I think even that point of not being able to cut a covenant uh, really might lean toward my side. It's impossible to cut a covenant. Why? Uh, because there there was no need to cut a covenant. It was already there. Like let's say that let, let's say that uh, God had described like what what kind of covenant ceremony would there be that would add to what He has already done in a pre-fallen world, 
Like, how would that, how would that have even come in, you know, how would you describe that? Um, so to me, again, uh, I think of, I, I tend to think of it in terms of there were nat, there was a natural and inherent relationship between God and humanity that because of sin was broken and had to be reconnected. Um, okay. And because of that, the word covenant is very useful because it expresses the greatest possible human reconnection that the ancient Near Eastern world had at that time. So I would say, and this is going off uh, a listener in the chat actually asked the question, is, is a covenant a man-made thing that God is condescending to, or is it something from God? Um, and so I'm going to say covenant is actually the relationship format by which God connects with things. Covenant mm-hmm. is not a man-made creation. It is a God, it, it, or rather, as we see it in culture, it is a reflection of how God has instilled in us creation purpose. So because of that, the definitions we normally use of covenant are that is the accommodation. There mm-hmm. is no ceremony in the fall because there didn't have to be. This is a beautiful life-for-life elected relationship. That's the core of covenant. We have to modify that post-fall because now we've got sin. Now we need to put, as you said, some skin in the game to make this serious. Hey, mm-hmm. here is the consequence if you go into this relationship and violate it. Um, mm-hmm. We see this type of accommodation, for lack of a better term, right, in the biblical story. As past things are no longer possible, you have to change. You have to make do, uh, right? Once the temple is destroyed, you have to come back for the second temple, and things aren't quite the same. We have to change how we do a few things. Um, so that would, I would say covenant comes from God. It's the way by which he relates to things. There is no sacrifice of animals because it's not needed, as you rightly say, pre-fall. Um, mm-hmm. but that's the thing it's ch- has to change post fall. I think Noah being the reestablishment of a covenant, but now with death is one of the interesting points. The author is trying to point out now we've got yeah. this. Now we know this term we're, we're in our culture and we see that this is something that is going to be, uh, guarded jealously and have very weighty consequences for violating. Mm-hmm. So, um, good points though. Uh, as you said, like, there is no word here. So in some level, this is a argument uphill uh, mm-hmm. for me because the term isn't there. And you and I are both that, – that's a big data point for both of us. Um, yeah. But that was, that, that was good. Anyway, final thoughts, and then uh, I'll, I'll turn it over to you if you have a question you want to take us down. Yeah, I, I love the word that you used, accommodation, that God is accommodating to us. And and Brian, I want to know, would you would you agree then – with my assertion that really are the covenants are made for our sake rather than God's. I feel like maybe there's a, a little bit difference there. What, what would you say of that uh, articulation of it? So what do you mean by they're made for our sake? Yeah. So basically what I, the argument that I made is, okay, God could have just said, I'm going to bless you, Abram. Uh, but rather than that, he made a covenant, as and as we read in Hebrews chapter 6, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. Um, and so I take that oath as covenantal language. It's even in the definition, yep. of course, that we talked about. So uh, to me, God could have just spoken the promises, but he does so in covenantal language, basically in one sense, so that we could then have confidence in God's promises. We could invoke them. We could bring the covenant back to God and say, God, you made this promise. So in that sense, uh, the covenant isn't, you know, 
it, it's not necessary for God to enter into a relationship with us in one sense, or at least to give the promises, but rather it's so that we have a greater degree of confidence knowing that God has done so in that way. Okay, so here here's my hang-up on that. Um, yeah. You say it's not necessary for God to have entered into covenant. He could have just spoken the promises. I would mm-hmm. push back and say, could he? I mean, mm-hmm. yes, of course, God, if the question is, could God have done something? Sure. But mm-hmm. if we understand that the central character of the Bible is God, mm-hmm. every story has an objective. God, from the very beginning, has a very clear objective. He has a very clear desire for yeah. relationship with his creation and relationship with humanity specifically. Does just mm-hmm. speaking promises bring him toward that goal? And I would argue, mm-hmm. no. Covenants as this interesting, I both act in history and then require something of you to be in an elected relationship where we're focused on knowing one another better, growing deeper in love with one another. Um, I don't think you can still get that just by God coming to Abram saying, I'm going to do these things for you. So I, I don't disagree with how you then describe it. It's definitely put in language so that we can understand. It's put in culture uh, or it's enculturated, right? Uh, so that it could be communicated. We could take reliance upon it. Hmm. But I don't want to say it's just for our benefit. I think there's something actually inherent with how God sits in relationship with people. I'm. Hmm. This might be too far, and feel free to push back on me, Tim. Mm-hmm. But one of the beauties of, of the Trinity, right, is God ex- exists as three persons. Mm-hmm. And so that means you can have love and you can have relationship, right? A purely monistic view of God cannot have love because you cannot love yourself. I mean, mm-hmm. we talk about self-love, but we don't mean love in the true sense. I would argue that that is fundamentally covenantal in how they act towards one another because they are focused on, right? The the love language the Bible uses is used in covenant categories. Um, so I might want to go so far as to say covenant is the, I, I said it earlier, but mm-hmm. planting a flag here saying covenant is how God relates to things. Uh, mm-hmm. And this is something essential to his character. It's how he relates to himself. It's how he desires to relate to us, um, which is then the tension of scripture because the Godhead is perfect. So they can covenant with one another and be perfect, but we are not. Mm-hmm. Hence the tension. Um, is that too far? And if that's too far, that's okay. I'm not, I, I don't, maybe that is, I, maybe I need to think about that a little bit more. Yeah. So Brian, I, as I, as I think about that, um, one, I like the clarification because I, I feel like in one sense you're saying uh, the covenants actually create the relationship in a sense. It's not just that yes. they're an expression of it, but that they don't, in other words, they don't just communicate, they also literally establish. Um, and and the, more I, the more I process that, I think that's a better way to articulate out. it uh, because yeah, it's very obvious. For listeners at home, sorry, you maybe can still hear Tim. Um, yes, I, I would say a covenant both clarifies and in some way instantiates relationship. Oh, yeah. you're back, Tim. Sorry, go ahead. Well, it looks like I'm I'm having a fun time with the relationship between me and my computer right now, so maybe I need to uh, cut a covenant with it. But um, in any case, no, I think that's helpful. And uh, in the same way, and we, you know, this is a function of words um, in, in even 
our modern culture, right? That some words simply communicate meaning, but there are also other words that actually establish new realities. Um, we mm-hmm. talked about one of these, right? When we make vows at a wedding, uh, it actually creates a new reality. Promises uh, create a new context of relationship. And so I actually think that's helpful, Brian. Uh, and so I, I maybe want to retract what I said, that it's not just only for our benefit. Although it, it is interesting to me, and this is, this is kind of my knee-jerk reaction, um, I think it's so hard uh, to, to use human language or human analogies at all to speak of inter-Trinitarian uh, realities but I, I definitely could be down sure. with the idea that the, the closest human metaphor that we have of the kind of internal love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have for one another um, is a covenant. Uh, and, and in that sense, I could even see, uh, see someone explain it in such a way that God created a covenantal context or even cr- established those kind of categories so that we could have even a dim reflection of the kind of of fidelity that he has internally that is of course uh, uh inherent to his nature but in but in another sense is also uh, uh something that i don't know if saying that it's it's volitional is is right because i think it's inherent in inviolable but at the same time uh there is that covenantal love that the covenants that we see are again a dim reflection of uh, when we talk of promise, we we can only think of that in terms of, well, someone could break a promise as opposed mm-hmm. to a true promise is something that literally could never be broken. And that's what we see uh, with the Trinity. So that's that's helpful. Um, Brian, let me let me maybe ask you a, a question or two. And this relates to uh, dispensationalism, covenantalism and progressive covenantalism, um, mm-hmm. because I think it I. I completely agree with you that when we think of dispensationalism, uh, in one sense, it, it focuses on the differences between the covenants, right? You have Old Testament Israel, New Testament church, oil and water, the two don't mix. And there are, of course, more radical views of that and others within dispensationalism. But then within covenantalism, there's a, a focus on continuity, one people of God, and so on. Um, so in terms of progressive covenantalism, then, what would you see as the major similarities between covenants we see in the Old Testament? And then what would you see as differences? Broad question, but maybe to even distill it more, what would you see as new in the new covenant? Very good question, because that would be one of my main critiques of covenant theology. And obviously, progressive mm-hmm. covenantalism draws its name from covenantalism. Mm-hmm. Um but one of my main critiques of traditional covenantal views is we almost flatten the biblical text to the point that there's nothing new, mm. that Christ, yeah. it's just the the final phase of this plan. But it's always been one people of God. Um, you, you can have authors talking about the church in the Old Testament. And, and I go, I don't know if that's fair to how the Bible walks through the newness of the new covenant. Mm. Uh, and, and I think there's some value there. So um, you kind of asked, so what is what is new functionally in the mm-hmm. New Testament? Um, so a couple things I, I think we can point to. First is this idea of we finally have a covenant uh, signatory on the human side that is capable of fulfilling it. And mm-hmm. that is something that has been looked for and longed for in all of the Old Testament covenants. Um, when we look at the 
out. We'll, we'll put Adam to the side for now. When you look at Noah, right? Noah is a covenant made with them, never going to flood the earth. Here's what you should go and do. Very next story, we have Noah getting drunk. Um, you have Abram and his extended family. Boy, the book of Genesis is a list of you know foils and uh, foibles of those individuals. You have the people of Israel get a covenant established with them. We know how that goes in the wilderness wanderings. The point is the human side has always been deficient. And that's what we're looking for. And that's the tension that we need a human side that can be perfect. Only God is perfect. And this is the thing hinted at, but it's still obscure in the Davidic covenant. Because in that covenant, the last of the Old Testament, God goes to David and says, I'm going to build you a household. Um, Because David had asked, can I build you a house vis-a-vis the temple? God says, no, but I'm going to build you a house. And your son, when he will rise from your body and he'll sit on the throne forever, he'll be like a son to me. I'll teach him his word, my words. Um, Even in the Old Testament, we're still looking at human kings that are fallible, right? We look at Solomon as the first one. We hope he can do it. He starts off well, and then he just ends in catastrophe. Um, and, And so it's this beautiful surprise of the incarnation. There are hints at it. The, the, Davidic covenants, one hint, the fact that going all the way back to Abram, only God is the one who walks through the animals and accepts the consequences, which I think to my mind says there's an interesting tension. At some level, as soon as the human side has sinned, God has promised death on himself. What does that mean? I think that is only really fulfilled and found in that new covenant in the New Testament. Um, I think something new that you see in the New Testament is the idea of rest, which I think is essential to most of these covenants. Uh, the idea of being in the place where God has set you to rest in his promises, that is now brought to fruition. Uh, it, it gets removed from being a single geographic place, but being able to access God anywhere on the world through the Holy Spirit, being able to be present where he wants you anywhere as we bear his image throughout the world. So it's things like this, um, that I go covenantalism, I think flattens things too much. Dispensationalism, I think drives too hard of a wedge. Um, and you didn't ask this, but just to say both sides, um, Mm -hmm. I, I don't look at Israel and the church necessarily being distinct in the ways that they want to make it. I think they are quite right to go, Hey, you can't, you can't have what's called replacement theology where the church just kicks Israel out of the way. Paul seems to have a whole chapter of Romans about that. Of mm-hmm. God doesn't forget his promises, but I, I think that looks different than dispensationalists usually want it to be. Um, I think Christ is the person through whom everything is fulfilled. He's Jewish. He's a Jewish king. He has the ability to then give whatever promises he has earned to the people that follow him, um, which includes the people of Israel for those who believe. So. Mm-hmm. That that touches on maybe some weightier issues we don't want to go too deep into, but um, that's what I would kind of see. So, Tim, did that answer your question, or was there something specific, uh, or are you looking for here? No, I, I think that's I think that's that's great. You know, when we think about uh, the Book of Hebrews in particular, I mean, in one yes. sense, it's a it's a it's an extended elaboration on the benefits of the new covenant. Uh, but as I think, I think especially Brian. Uh, about the continuity in one sense between the Abrahamic covenant uh, all the way to the new covenant. Um, mm-hmm. And you see this, you see this argued in Paul, you see it in Hebrews, uh, but there's never a sense it, that the Mosaic covenant in one sense is uh, fulfilled, at least in the same way that the Mosaic covenant is. Uh, the Mosaic covenant 
is, of course, in one sense, a temporary covenant, whereas the Abrahamic covenant uh, is a covenant that is, yes, fulfilled in Christ, but it, it's it's fulfilled not as in completed and set aside, but in the sense that it was God's plan the entire time. Uh, mm. I didn't say that exactly how I wanted to, but but basically the Mosaic covenant functions differently than the Abrahamic covenant, at least in my understanding, that there was a, a particular period of time where the Mosaic covenant was intended to be enacted, uh, initiated, and then completed, whereas uh, the the Abrahamic covenant is in one sense more foundational uh, and therefore is in one sense more the focus, even of Paul, say, in in Romans chapter 4 and other places. Um, So I don't know if you would agree with that, but of course the book of Hebrews is where we see so much of the benefits of this new covenant uh, come come to the fore. Yeah, no, and I would agree. I mean, I think the uh, Abrahamic covenant is operative while the heavens and earth exist until the new heavens and new earth, because it's talking about in you, all the nations of the earth shall bless themselves. And Paul makes the connection. This is talking about Christ. And while the day of rest is open, let us enter into that rest as Hebrews says. Um, Yeah. I think it's talking programmatically about here's what, here's what the plan of history is. Um, And I would abstract it. I don't think it's about a specific promised land, um, but it's about that concept of rest being God's people where God has called you to be. Uh, The Mosaic covenant is, different in that it's the only one made to a nation rather than an individual, um, right. which makes it highly unique. And Tim, there are many scholars who would say that Mosaic covenant is actually uh, abrogated isn't the right word. It's failed. It's just, it's just, it's dissolved because of Israel's infidelity. And that's what right. the exile is. That's what the latter prophets talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. What would you think of that? Do you like that language? Do you not like that language? Um, with, uh, I'm thinking of like, uh, Hosea divorce your wife. You are no longer my people. Things like that. Talking about the break of covenant fidelity. What would you think? Yeah. I I mean, in a sense, it's undeniable that Israel broke their fidelity with the Mosaic covenant, but ultimately, and Brian, I'm in fundamental agreement with you. What we see is that all of the covenantal obligations are fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, right? So Mm -hmm. uh, even Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ, uh, that Jesus was born, according to Paul in Galatians 3, he was born of woman, he was born under the law. And so if he's born under the law, that entails that the law still has to be in effect for him to be Mm -hmm. under it. And so as he fulfills it, he lives it out, um, we talked about this in our interview with Dr. Everbeck. He lives it out. He perfectly fulfills it. Uh, but I think for me, as I and this is kind of where I was going earlier, it, when I read the book of Hebrews, when it talks about a better covenant or use words like obsolete or complete, I think the primary target there is the Mosaic covenant. Uh, that mm-hmm. it, it's in contrast to the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant that we see the blessings of Christ. And also, uh, frankly, even in Hebrews 3, 6, and 10, it talks about the curses that come when we reject uh, those promises of of Christ. Um, so I like how you said it, you know, and and just to to try and articulate it the best I can, we see the Mosaic Covenant that has a very set purpose for a very set period of time. Uh, but even even when we see the prophecy, say, of Jeremiah, at least as I read it, 
in Jeremiah 31, uh, it talks about this new covenant is not like the one that I made with their fathers when I brought them out of Egypt. In other words, mm-hmm. the focus of the Old Testament uh, is not just on one covenant that God makes with the people in Egypt. The new covenant reflects a point uh, where God fulfills the promise that he made to Abraham and therefore all the nations. And of course, that's where yeah. the, the the implications then just just are are so fruitful, because God's promise wasn't just for one nation for one period of time, but God's plan and purposes from the beginning were for all nations to experience the covenantal blessings of God through one person, through one nation, uh, but ultimately all of those are summed up in Christ Jesus, who is the King, who is the Messiah, who is the, the faithful one, who is the obedient one, who of course fulfills the law in a way that no one else could, both as obedient son, but also as sacrifice, who uh, fulfills all requirements uh, by his blood. So this is the Very beauty. Good. This is the beauty of covenants as well. They help mm-hmm. us to understand and have categories for what God has done, and ultimately, the covenants all point forward to the glory of Christ. Right? That He is yeah. He is the one who comes and fulfills them all gloriously, uh, and really brings them all to, uh, together, as you said, in a way that that otherwise is not even possible. Yeah, really well said. And listeners, I'm hoping that this is a exciting your interest in kind of understanding covenants and b also seeing some of the, the richness and the nuances and why very uh, eager, very well-minded Christians have some disagreements on how we fit these together. Cause there's a lot of content you have to deal with and wrestle with. Uh, you have some, right. As Tim and I have kind of pointed out, like they were saying like, Oh, the mosaic covenant kind of ends in the old Testament. Um, and, and isn't operative. It's Abrahamic that we're really focused on as we get to the new. Um, there's interesting points that Deuteronomy is Jesus's favorite book to quote from. Uh, and so he sees himself as, and Dr. Averback, when we interviewed him, sees himself as living out that covenant, that it's still operative in some sense. But then what does it mean to be operative? And uh, mm-hmm. this is the beauty of what we're studying here. So uh, very well put though, Tim, thank you for that. Uh, going to take a question from the chat and then. Uh, Listeners, if you have any other final questions, and then Tim will kind of get some final thoughts as we wrap up here. Um, But this question, can we talk a bit more about cutting a covenant? And in particular, what's different about the Abrahamic covenant when it is finally ratified? So, uh, Tim, I I gave my definition. How about you talk about it a little bit? What, What does cutting a covenant mean? Yeah, great question, and thank you for it. As we think about cutting a covenant, again, the idea here is that something uh, that's valuable, and in particular in, uh, say, Genesis 15 with the Abrahamic covenant, something that has has life is then killed and cut, uh, so that in Genesis 15, we have God walking through the midst of an animal that's been killed as a signal and as a sign that he is taking that consequence upon himself if the covenant is not fulfilled. Uh, yeah. So the idea of cutting a covenant is basically that there is a cost, that there are obligations that are made, and there is a price that will be paid for those obligations to be upheld. So cutting a covenant means that it's not just, uh, you know, it's it's not a pinky promise, or it's not a, hey, I'm just saying I'm going to do this, but there's no skin in the game. 
uh, the idea of cutting a covenant is that there is there is a sacrifice that is going to be involved. That that relationship, uh, it, especially in the case of Abraham, uh, is really a relationship that is bought with blood, uh, even mm-hmm. from the beginning. And I think that that even flows into the answer I would have. What makes the Abrahamic covenant different? Well, it's it's the covenant where God most clearly, in one sense, shows that He is the one who is going to bring about the fulfillment of the covenant. Uh, yeah. Abraham is truly passive in the story in Genesis 15, uh, and he's not just passive. It's not like he's standing over watching God do this. He's literally asleep. You know, God yeah. puts him asleep in, in one sense, and this is maybe to Brian's point of the covenantal language of Genesis 2, right? God put Adam to sleep. Uh, so point for Brian by Tim. I don't, you know, you can do that for me too, Brian. <laughs> but as we think about this, God is saying at the cost, at my cost, I'm going to pay whatever it takes to bring to fulfillment these promises that I am making to you. And so in that sense, God is the initiator and guarantor of the covenants. Uh, And how does that differ? Well, in one sense, that faith that Abraham had is still required in all of the other covenants. Uh, But in another sense, we see uh, the 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 secure foundation of God's ultimate promises in the Abrahamic covenant that are maybe a bit more obscured by the particularities that we see with Israel as a nation and with David as a king. Yeah, really good. The um, All I would add uh, is, so the, the whole point of cutting the animals, it's cost of a life, it's something costly— the other element is the oath, and we haven't really talked mm, about that. And yeah. there's a whole we can't even get into that because that's another like thirty minutes if we go too far down this route. But you remember Hugenberger's definition is there's an oath involved, and the oath is usually may the god or gods, depending on your culture, right, do this to me, kill mm. me, if yeah. I should break this covenant. You take the hand of your covenant partner and you walk through the animals, and so you have wished death upon yourself if you are unfaithful. So what's shocking, as Tim said in Genesis, is the human party does not walk through the animals. No person in their right mind would unilaterally walk through the animals and take both sides of the consequence, right? Mm. I don't know if anyone trusts anyone that much, but God does. Um, And so that shows, I think Tim makes a very good point, right? It shows God's kind of this is as close to an unconditional covenant as I think we get. This is God-led, God-initiated, God-accepting uh, of the consequences. And then it adds in the tension of, as human readers, we go, but Abram's going to screw up at some point, isn't he? <laughs> like, there's no way the human side's going to be perfect. So what has God done? Um, and this adds a, the, the tension. I keep using that word, but it's my favorite word here. Uh, tension element of God is going to die somehow for the sins of the human side, because he's faithful on his side, but the human side is not. And so I think that starts a thread that is going to be culminated at the cross. Uh, And so that's, I think, what's significant about the Abrahamic covenant. That's why I think a lot of the focus, rightly, should be back on that one and how it's operative in the New Testament. But uh, yeah, good question. Excellent question for us. And we got one last one, it looks like, Tim. Um, so the same kind of logic is that all uh, all sin is equal, which is a myth, which I think we even talked about in one of our myths and mistake episodes. Uh, severe consequences of a covenant imply varying degrees of commitment. I shouldn't have read that live. I should have read it ahead of time because <laughs> um, I don't know if that's a question. I think that actually might have been a follow up to a previous point uh, yeah. by Jacob because, yes, go ahead, Tim. 
Well, let me let me just speak to that. I think he's right. I think in one sense, especially as we look to the Mosaic Covenant, that different sins in one sense have a different degree of severity, in part because some of them are unintentional. But then, of course, if someone in a high-handed way, in a way that knowingly uh, basically tries to shred the covenant, those those are are sins of a greater degree. Uh, those are sins that that require a different response, and that's I I, I would argue that we see that um, come to fruition in, in even the punishments that we see under the Mosaic Covenant. But and this is what we see so beautifully say in the Book of Hosea is that God essentially says, "Hey, you know, you can try and spin out of this as much as you want, but at the end of the day, I've got promises that I am going to bring to fruition, including bringing you back to myself." Uh, that God's, and this is what I love about covenant, covenant is is not just the means by which God accomplishes salvation. Covenant is also the means by which God demonstrates his faithful love, that God yes. will not just cast aside his promises or his faithfulness. Uh, so in that sense, covenants are the means by which the grace of God can be placed on display in a way that really would be impossible otherwise. So my final word for us, Brian, at least for me, is just to say the covenants really are so full of meaning uh, and, and so so able to be searched. They, they really have an unsearchable depth to them uh, because they, they just so vividly reflect the glory of God, the love of God, the faithfulness of God. And again, for our part then, uh, as we respond in faith, the obedience of faith, we do so uh, because of love, because the covenants really do draw out love from us because we see God's glory on display in them. All right, Tim. I Oh, you're back, but you are done. Um, so thank you for that. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Um, any final comments as we wrap up? Last things you want to leave our, our listeners with? Yeah, no, just what I said. The covenants are such a blessing to us because they reveal the character and the love of God. Yeah, amen to that. Um, listeners, one thing I want to leave you with, uh, we have come right up to the edge of it and danced around it a few times, uh, but theology matters. And, mm. and even something like this, talking about covenants, how we put together the Bible okay, this is nice and interesting and academic. It has some important implications for then we how, how we then live. Uh, it has implications for how we view the future, what we think is going to happen, what we think God still owes in various covenants, depending on how we put them together. So mm -hmm. our, our encouragement, and at least my encouragement, is I'm not interested if you agree with me or disagree with me. I'm interested in you pursuing God. I'm interested in you seeking after his will, his truth. Um, and that's, I think, all we can ask <laughs> for any of us. Uh, but take this as something that's serious. It has implications for the world right now today. And I'll leave it at that. Um, listeners, this has been a fun episode. Dr. Tim, thank you so much for uh, bringing your, your wisdom, your scholarly wit, and your pastoral experience to kind of help walk us through this important topic. Appreciate, as always, dialoguing with you. You give me good things to go and like mull on, uh, and we'll probably turn off the call and talk for another 20 minutes about this. But 
Listeners, I also want to encourage you to come back next week because we're going to be talking about Noah's Ark, which is going to be a fun and exciting debate. Uh, might get a little interesting depending on what we bring out. But uh, thank you so much for joining us on this talk tonight. We hope these videos have been helpful. They've drawn you closer to God, closer to his word. We hope that you go out and have a wonderful week as we get into the time of Thanksgiving and Christmas and come back to us next week. As always, friends, till next time, stay cool and stay old. Have a wonderful night. Take care.